Crossing Borders would like to formally acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are gathered. Bianca and I are coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders, past, present and emerging, extending our respect also to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander audience members attending. We'd also like to include that we are meeting on unceded sovereign Aboriginal land. This land was and always will be Aboriginal country. Please be advised that this podcast addresses themes such as trauma, depression, PTSD and other mental health conditions, sexual and domestic violence, self-harm, torture and suicide. Only continue to listen at your own discretion. If you are feeling overwhelmed, distressed or need support, Lifeline and Beyond Blue are resources that you can access 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Contact Lifeline on 131114 and Beyond Blue on 1300 4636. Hello everyone and welcome to our fourth episode of our podcast Borderless Healthcare. My name's Meg and I'm Bianca and we are third year medical students part of the Crossing Borders Monash education team. Crossing Borders Monash is an initiative run by medical students to remove barriers and advance healthcare standards of refugees and asylum seekers. And our goal with with this podcast is to stimulate conversations and to bring further awareness to the health challenges faced by Australia's refugee and asylum seeker communities. These episodes will be shared on our Facebook, Instagram and website for all to access at any time. So make sure you check us out. We're super excited to welcome back Professor Suresh Sundaram, head of the Department of Psychiatry at the School of Clinical Sciences, Monash. He's also the Director of Research at the Mental Health Program at Monash Health. So welcome back, Suresh. Thanks, Meg and Bianca. Uh, once again, uh, we just want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and come and talk to us on our podcast. Um, As medical students, um, these conversations give us insight into the struggles that certain communities, especially minority communities, face and will definitely help us when we become doctors to ensure that we're better equipped to both understand their medical concerns, both in a holistic sense and also help us ensure that we cater better to their needs. So just to kind of keep going on the topic of accessing help, um, what are the some of the challenges that you've kind of come across when refugees or asylum seekers try to seek out these treatments for their mental health? So I think there are two sets of issues that are tied up together here, Meg. The first is around who accesses help and, and uh, uh, whether or not they do access help. And the second is about what they can access. The second part's a bit easier, so I'll start with that. And clearly there's a difference, as I mentioned to you before in the first episode, between refugees and asylum seekers. So refugees are essentially part of of the mainstream Australian um, society. They have all the benefits that accrue to someone who's a a member of the mainstream uh, society. So they can technically access all the same healthcare services that any Australian is Uh, entitled to. However, because they're refugees, nearly all of them, and I would hazard a guess to say all of them, are relatively impoverished. 
they, generally speaking, haven't brought a lot of resource with them from their uh, transit country or from their home country. Um, many of them struggle to find work. And so they tend to be at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale in, in Australian society. What that means, of course, is that they like uh, that similar component in, in an established Australian community uh, need to or can only access public services. And so that means that, of course, they're falling to sort of public hospitals, uh, public outpatient clinics, and then general practice or primary care where they can uh, be bulk billed or, or similar. On the other hand, asylum seekers, for a large part, are even more destitute than, than refugees. They are, for the most part, not entitled to any uh, community or mainstream uh, welfare benefits. A good proportion of them are not eligible for Medicare, and a good proportion of them, even though they might have Medicare, don't have any additional income, so can't access any services uh, and including a healthcare card, they don't can't access a healthcare card, so can't access sort of mainstream um, health services that would be publicly available for for others. For those people, and sorry, I should just add, in Australia there is also a cohort, which is quite a sizable cohort of what we term undocumented migrants. These are people who, in a sense, are. Uh, I don't want to say worse off than asylum seekers, but are comparable to asylum seekers in that they haven't lodged a claim for asylum, but are in the same boat, uh, the figurative boat, I mean, uh, which is that they don't have work rights, they don't have access to welfare, they don't have access to any of the other mainstream supports. Um, many of them will potentially be working illegally. And when they are working illegally, will be exploited by their employers. A good proportion of these people might be engaging in uh, uh, activities which are under the, the, the radar from a legal perspective. They might be sex workers, for example, uh, or they might be working uh, in itinerant type jobs where they're open to exploitation. Both undocumented migrants and asylum seekers are reliant on charitable organisations for a lot of their uh, support. This is both in terms of financial uh, and uh, material support, but also for health support. There are a number of agencies in Victoria that provide that. I mentioned in the previous episode the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, which is a large um, organization based in Footscray, which provides uh, a whole range of uh, supports, including health for asylum seekers. Um, there is a Monash Health, where I work, uh, which has a refugee health program, in which I work, uh, which has both primary care as well as, as, well as mental health, uh, and also other support systems which are linked in, and that's a, a very uh, sophisticated and uh, high-functioning uh, healthcare system for refugees and asylum seekers. In addition to that, a number of years ago, it'd be five, four years ago now, five years ago, I established the Cabrini Asylum Seeker and Refugee Health Hub. This was in conjunction with Cabrini, uh, which is a, 
uh, um, a Catholic charity which is based in uh, Melbourne, which runs um, a hospital and other healthcare services. And they funded a, a service which provides primary health care as well as uh, specialist mental health care for asylum seekers who are living in the north and the west of, of Melbourne. Uh, now, all of these agencies that I've mentioned provide pro bono health care. What that is is that anybody who doesn't qualify for uh, funded medical services can, uh, can come to these services and get primary health care or specialist mental health care. It should be noted that a number of years ago, uh, the Victorian government and subsequent to that, I think all the Australian state governments have undertaken to provide pro bono health care through their public hospital systems in acute situations for asylum seekers. So if an asylum seeker happens to have something acutely happen to their health, they can turn up to a public hospital and receive uh, pro bono health care. But that's a, an individual state-based agreement uh, that, that states have undertaken. Sure. And I think we've talked a little bit about the barriers in terms of um, like the policies and stuff that we have in place for our the asylum seeker communities and the undocumented migrant communities that you mentioned before. What do you think are some of the stigmas, I guess, um, maybe within the communities themselves about maybe seeking out treatment? Or um, what do you think are some of the reasons that they may just prolong how long they go dealing with some of these symptoms before they decide that it's something that they may need to reach out and mm. ask for help, I guess. So, again, the, the range of factors which operate to prevent or which serve as barriers for people to access healthcare are manifold. The first that I mentioned and which remains a very important one is about money. And if people don't have sufficient money to access healthcare or to access medicines, to purchase medicines, then people won't do that. The second relates to um, health literacy, which I also mentioned in the first episode. People come from countries where there may be very low levels of health literacy, where there may be a lot of misinformation about health systems and where a lot of health systems may in fact be perceived as being persecutory or in other ways unhelpful. Uh, you know, there's a long history, for example, of, of uh, psychiatry being used to oppress uh, or persecute people. And so people have uh, from those countries might have a very strong aversion to ever seeking any help from uh, mental health or, or psychiatry uh, services. However, people may just not know and they may not be aware that symptoms that they're experiencing currently might be related to either physical or mental health problems. People may not understand the importance of uh, disorders. So for example, disorders which have no active current symptoms like hypertension or type 2 diabetes, people may have little understanding of the importance of um, managing those disorders actively today to prevent complications later because they don't understand the, the physiological processes. People may have a lot of misunderstanding or misinformation about vaccinations, for example, which contribute that, of course, is dependent upon a person's education, their level of familiarity with um, health models, their level of familiarity with um, Western 
health system or Western models of understanding. There may also be a significant overlay of uh, cultural beliefs about health systems. So people might well believe that particular symptom clusters can be attributable from a cultural perspective to a particular etiology or particular pathogenesis, which is culturally appropriate, but which to mainstream Western medicine might seem uh, antiquated or uh, somehow inappropriate, and therefore it becomes important for health systems to recognise and to work with, with alternate understandings. The other element, of course, is language, familiarity, and people um, having sufficient English language proficiency to understand healthcare professionals or to be able to access healthcare systems or uh, to be able to undertake the types of interventions that are required and associated with English language proficiencies, acculturation. So how familiar are you with the way Western society in Australia or in Melbourne works? Um, and how familiar are you and comfortable in negotiating that system? So that's very important. Now, those factors apply to, if you like, any migrant um, or anybody from a socioeconomically deprived background. Undocumented migrants and asylum seekers have an additional set of complexities that they need to overcome or barriers that they face that they need to overcome. And that relates to potential fears of persecution. So undocumented migrants and asylum seekers may well have beliefs that if they go and see health authorities, the health authorities might report them to the immigration authorities that if they were to give their data, their personal data or private data, that that data might be used in any migration claim or that it might be given to the police or that they might be uh, arrested, etc. So those sorts of fears act to deter people from seeking health care. Mm, sure, sure. And um, in terms of once they've made that choice and have started to take... Um, get that treatment that they need. How have you seen the outcomes um, and the improvements in the community? Is that something that you've noticed? So occasionally the sorts of things that we do actually do help people and people do get better and it's always gratifying when that happens. Uh, however, and I don't want to dissuade any of, any of your listeners, but a lot of the challenges and problems that asylum seekers and refugees face aren't readily resolved and it can take a very long time before people get better. And unfortunately for many people, they never ever regain their previous level of functioning. This particularly we observe in asylum seekers who've been in Australia for protracted periods without resolution of their migration status. So people who've either not had their uh, asylum claim processed or where they've had a rejection or a couple of rejections by the authorities um, and remain for extended periods of time in limbo. So as I mentioned to you before, this sort of purgatory state where they can't really resettle, uh, but they also can't return back to, to where their country of origin or to any other country. Those people 
I would like to say that when they finally do get protection in Australia, and most of them have, generally speaking, obtained protection, they, in fact, because of their extended period uh, or experience of high chronic stress, don't actually get much better. And uh, for them, even years after mm. they've been allowed to resettle, they still haven't uh, regained a, a sort of an equilibrium of where they were before all of this started. Right. Yeah, I think mental health is one of those challenging areas that we're still trying to tackle. And I think um, in these asylum seeker communities, especially, there's that extra struggle or challenge because they're going, they went through something that we can't even begin to understand because we haven't personally been through it. And I think, um, but I think that also makes it all that more important to address and be aware of these issues that are around us. Um, and I guess just moving on to the future a little bit, in regards to mental health, what do you hope that the future looks like for these communities? Yeah, so what would be uh, actually, so from a uh, health education perspective, if you like, so talking about talking to the audience who'd be likely listening to this, this is a classic example where a social intervention will have a profound health impact. And in particular, if people who are living in this purgatory, in this state of limbo, were permitted to resettle and were permitted to engage with mainstream uh, Australian society, that would be the biggest uh, assistance to their mental health and also subsequently to their physical health. So what we found from a very um, important study from a, a few years ago now was that if you simply allowed people to live in the community with access to Medicare, so public health access, mm -hmm. with the right to work, they didn't need to actually have a job, they just needed to have the right to work, then those two factors in themselves were promoted um, a profound improvement in major depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so here were two simple social interventions, which wouldn't cost in the overall global scheme of things very much at all for the Australian community, which would have very powerful positive impacts um, on, on health. The other element, in, and uh, you both mentioned this earlier, is about the impacts on children. What we don't really understand is children who've been subjected to these conditions, both with immigration detention, but also this protracted uh, uncertainty, which then obviously has very direct impacts on their parents, which indirectly has impacts on the children. What we don't know is the consequences for for these kids. We know that they do manifest psychological and psychiatric disorder. And we sort of think that we can assist them. But what we don't know is what is the impact on their development and what is their impact on their educational performance and what is their impact on their future life outcomes. And in particular, what if they never experienced any of this? You know, how much healthier or how much better would they be compared to uh, what they are? And they're questions that are very difficult to answer now, but which we obviously need to uh, monitor closely in, in the coming years. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, um, definitely. And I think we really hope to see progress in those areas too. And I think more research and just more awareness um, and education will really help with that. Um, and I guess expanding on that, what advice would you give to us being medical students in the next batch of junior doctors in regards to mental health struggles and addressing those in our practice? Yes. So this is this is the opportunity for, um, you know, for you all to really be transformative in how this whole group of people are treated and managed. So when I trained as a medical student and as a young doctor and in subsequent cohorts, there was always some lip service paid to what we might term um, cultural diversity and about what that might mean and about how we should potentially approach it. However, we recognised and we still recognise that implementing that sort of understanding on a day-to-day -day basis in your interactions with patients can be very difficult um, and that, generally speaking, we tend just to ignore it because it's too hard to do very much about it. What my suggestions would be, in fact, is that you should pay attention to this and even if you're not able to necessarily directly do very much about it, just paying attention can, in very many cases, be um, of great therapeutic uh, benefit. And the ways to do that, obviously, first to try and understand the, the, the cultural diversity of the person that you're seeing. And that's relatively straightforward to do. Normally, you'd recognise them as sort of not being non-mainstream. And clearly, when you start to speak to them, you recognise that they don't speak English uh, probably as clearly or as articulately as you do, and to make some general inquiries about their, their origins, about their history, about how they've ended up in Australia. Now, those questions don't need to be intrusive or they don't need to be experienced in a persecutory way. It's just about exhibiting a gentle curiosity about the person, about how they've ended up, um, you know, in uh, in your hospital or in your clinic or in the suburb or community or township where you happen to be seeing them. Just expressing that level of interest and curiosity can be very positive in, in engaging with them. The second thing is that it's important to try and have some understanding about their models of illness and their models of health they might be highly educated and highly acculturated to Western models and then, you know, you can simply use the model that you have been trained in. However, it might also be useful to get an understanding from them about what they believe might be wrong with them. This is particularly important if you think that the problem might be psychological or psychiatric, uh, but it can also be physical, so people complaining of headache, as I mentioned to you before, uh, or there's a very interesting patient that I see who is a refugee from Afghanistan who has an uncontrollable um, tremor of his left hand. Now, that tremor had been diagnosed by various doctors as being um, Parkinsonian, as being tardive dyskinesia related to antipsychotic drugs, as being um, diagnosed as being uh, potentially a focal epilepsy. 
But when I asked him, you know, what he thought the cause of the tremor was, it was pretty clear that he thought it was due to a genie that had been put into his mind by uh, his brother who was trying to force him out of the country so that the brother could inherit the family estate. Okay. And then when we started to probe that, it became clear that he was a man with a really relatively straightforward and simple to diagnose schizophrenia. And that in fact, if you treated his schizophrenia with an antipsychotic, then he got better. And um, guess what? His tremor improved. So, oh. you know, what was clear was that just by exhibiting a, a, I guess, a sense of cultural humility that I didn't know everything and that, in fact, he might be able to provide me with um, an understanding uh, was sufficient to, make a, uh, to lead me onto the right track, which was, in fact, then to diagnose him with an illness which would then be relatively straightforward to treat. Uh, so those two or those three concepts I think are key. One is uh, a gentle curiosity about the person in front of you. The second is about recognising and acknowledging that sort of cultural diversity and about how that might impact a person's understanding. And then the third is about um, assuming an attitude of cultural humility that, um, you know, just because you're a big hotshot um, doctor educated at a top flight university um, doesn't necessarily mean that you know everything and that, uh, you know, the patient in front of you might well be able to give you clues and insights into their illness, but more importantly about how you might treat them. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, like that was that was great. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Um, that's great advice and we'll definitely take that on board, I'm sure. Um, and I guess just to end it off finally, um, I think our listeners and ourselves as well, we would really like to know what are some ways that medical students can get involved in refugee health? Yeah, so there's, in fact, what you're doing now, I think, is a great initiative. And I know that um, over the years I've been involved with other crossing borders initiatives, uh, both here and, and at other universities. And I think that's a great way of raising the awareness um, in the medical student population. I do say, though, it's a bit sort of preaching to the converted, the fact that you're listening to this podcast or that you've conducted this podcast or that you're affiliated with Crossing Borders means that you're already uh, attuned to the, the issues and that you might already be aware of what's happening. Uh, but actually, the involvement that you might have is potentially much more in your social networks um, where because you have an understanding and appreciation of the issues, you may well serve as uh, people who can influence other people's thinking. I think it's critical that you call out uh, misinformation. I think it's critical that you uh, uh, argue against uh, perspectives which may be not based on, on a true understanding or a true knowledge of the situation, that you advocate in uh, uh, you know, social spaces and in public spaces and in political spaces if you get the opportunity about what you believe might be uh, fundamental human values and what you might be as fundamental human rights that 
really underpin not just medicine, but actually underpin uh, our society and our, our, our country. As I mentioned right at the very outset, why I got into this was because of this Tampa incident where uh, the country split along two, and I would be, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be contradicted. I think if I said that the country still exists along those polarized lines, people who think that uh, what was done then is correct, and what people who think that what was done then was not correct. Um, so that doesn't mean that you know one side is right and the other side is wrong. What it does mean, though, is that uh, we should debate this and that we should argue uh, and that we should bring forward uh, reasoned and cogent and rational reasons why we believe that our perspective is correct and why the country should be persuaded to act in a particular way. I'm very much reminded in saying that about uh, the behaviour of um, the health, health professionals, but you know, proudly say led by doctors uh, around what happened uh, with the children off Nauru campaign. Now this was ultimately uh, you know, brought to fruition through the actions of politicians, in particular the former president of the AMA, Karen Phelps, who ran for parliament and when she was in parliament was then able to bring together a, a coalition to uh, legislate for children and families to be brought off Nauru and, and under the Medivac legislation that you would be aware of. However, that campaign actually didn't start with Karen Phelps. It started much before that and it started with um, doctors and it started with doctors who believed that children who were being brought off Nauru for um, illness, for treatment in Australia, shouldn't be returned to conditions where those illnesses were going to be allowed to um, recrudesce. So uh, this was the, as I mentioned to you before about the, the social determinants of health, these paediatricians in particular believed, and, and child psychiatrists believed that if they sent their, the children that they were looking after back to Nauru, then the children would get sick again. And so they then uh, advocated for uh, their patient to receive the best possible treatment on an individual case-by-case -case basis. And by doing so, they were able to galvanise social support. And in galvanising social support, they were able to sway public opinion and politicians listen to public opinion and in the end um, the, the the politicians backed down and the children were allowed to stay more recently you'd be familiar with the the tamil family from Bilawala in queensland who uh, were sent to christmas island and i won't go into the politics of that but it was the constant advocacy of a whole range of people, including healthcare professionals, which finally have allowed that family to stay in, in uh, Western Australia. And although they're not in uh, Queensland, they're in certainly much better conditions uh, and circumstances than they were in locked detention on Christmas Island. So uh, my advice to medical students and as young doctors is to continue to uh, recognise that health is underpinned by human rights and that 
health is a human right and that you as the next generation of uh, carriers or advocates for those rights and that system of action need to maintain a moral framework to, to undertake that process. Sure. And I think, like you said, it's be about being vocal advocates of causes that we believe in. Um, and when we do see injustice, um, not being afraid to call it out, um, whether it just be within our own social circles or in the wider community, um, if we see something. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a great piece of advice. And I think it's something that we can just implement into our daily lives as well. Um, and unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up. But um, this has been a great two-part episode. Um, I think we've discussed a lot on an area that um, is so crucial, but I don't think gains enough um, awareness as much as it should. So thank you again, Suresh, for taking the time to come and have this conversation with us. Bianca and I have definitely learned a lot and we hope our listeners have too. Great. My pleasure, Megan, Bianca. Thank oh. you. Thank you so much. Um, and now, guys, um, in our next episode, we are extremely fortunate to have Dr. Anup Ravindran share a personal experience um, that he has had with this community with us. And so we're super excited and hope you are, you guys are too. Thank you for tuning in today and we hope to see you in our next episode. Thank you. Bye. Bye.